Um, no, I, I made these recordings, um, and I've gone to these mosques, and I've gone to these uh, churches now for a number of years uh, and gotten to know these folks. Uh, I didn't make the recording until, well, it was five years in, until I knew the people involved very well, because I um, knew what kind of knee-jerk reactions there would be uh, to making a recording about this. And I took it around, and something that was really quite interesting, all the people at the mosques and all the people in the uh, churches said the same thing, um, that this was a wonderful thing to take out of Ghana and to play for the world, because it would show the world that there's religious tolerance in Ghana. Uh, <laughs> it's not probably the first thing that struck you. But uh, I thought that was discursively quite fascinating that this is, uh, and the way um, people uh, take the idea of acoustic coexistence as um, um, a construct of religious tolerance in a plural, uh, a plural space like Nima and a plural space like Accra. Um, if you've read Charles Hershkin's book, um, The Ethical Soundscape, about the world of um, uh, the, the sound and mosques uh, in Cairo, uh, you know that dimensions of competitiveness, issues of power and control of space uh, historically uh, and many other ways are uh, very deeply in play uh, in, in many <coughs> places where there are mosques. And certainly that story is being played out over and over and over again uh, around contestation over building mosques and uh, the control of sound um, uh, during, during the day and, and the control of ideas of, uh, of, a, of a public space that is not um, crowded with particular kinds of uh, sounds indexical to, uh, to, to belief. And uh, uh, I don't know of anybody you know, telling the churches that they can't play their bells in quite the same way that mosques have been told uh, that they can't play their sounds. But anyway, this is, there's new, there's a proliferation of forms of contestation around this, uh, obviously. Uh, so this across story is interesting in that regard. It was also interesting for me because um, I uh, had the, t the recorder on an automatic timer for when it would go off. I would record every morning for two hours. I did this over a couple of months so that I could study the recordings and figure out the microphone placements. And then, uh, you know, kind of went for it. And the 45-minute thing is mixed. It compresses about a little less than two hours, the 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. period, into 45 minutes. Um, there's uh, real-time tracks there. Um, uh, there was nothing that was recorded close up anywhere. All of it is ambient. All of it was recorded, the entirety of it was recorded from roofs. Uh, and, uh, and not with hyperdirectional microphones either, or reflectors of any kind. So uh, this is very much about waking up as an experience. Um, I mean, if you read Bachelard about waking up, Bachelard talks about waking up as reaching out into the world as the world reaches toward you, and that that is the experience of coming into your body in your bed, you know, in that, in that beautiful book where he writes about the poetics of space and being at home and what it means to be in your bed. and 
and so forth. And he poeticizes this idea of the simultaneous reaching out to the world and the world reaching into you. Uh, in a, in a, in a, it's, it's really quite gorgeous, actually, uh, to read. I, I find it very inspiring to go back to that. And um, so, uh, but he doesn't write about the, the sound at all. In fact, I know of no philosopher or no psychologist who's written, written about the transition between dream and wakefulness who's written about the experience of sound. Well, there's, there's one, uh, Rycroft writes about it a little bit, but it, uh, uh, there's not very much about that. And so I wanted to make a recording that would um, kind of speak to the, the experiential complexity of, of that, the, the, the intense uh, sociality of waking up and, and, the, and that intense uh, kind of going into yourself and wondering what was in the dream and what was what's going on out there in the world that you can't see. So uh, about half of this recording is sounds that can't be seen at the time that they're being made, uh, or things that are coming from diffuse, hidden sources, in a sense. So they enter your dreams in a particular way, and they enter the world of the immediate in a particular way. Um, so this also, this is working with time and memory uh, and experience, but in a very different way to the first piece, obviously. Uh, in terms of my control and my, my use of compositional elements. I, uh, in this one, I spread out the sound as much as possible. Everything is spread out every, vertically and horizontally. It's, uh, I didn't use a whole lot of, uh, of reverb, but there are a couple of different layers of depth and a couple of different layers of height that I'm working with all the time um, when in the mix. Uh, and. Uh, um, and I'm really interested in the distortion, how much sound at that time of the day is, is sound which is driven over the, way over the edge of distortion by amplifiers in the charismatic churches. And what, um, what the diffuseness of distorted sound is as a, um, as a new kind of experience of coming into the world. We often think about coming into the world as something that takes us from a kind of vague space into a kind of something that jumps or is sharp or peaks a moment of clarity. Um, and uh, the diffuseness of distorted sound is a very different uh, kind of element in this, in this experiential process. And I wanted to kind of bring that into the story of waking and dreaming. 